Hey guys, Robert here. If you haven't already went out and checked out our Patreon site, please do so by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash mentors, the number four M-I-L. Check it out. See if there's a donation that you'd like to make to help support the podcast. Uh, you can make it large, you can make it small, whatever it is that you'd like to do, but all your donations really go a long way in helping us. Sit back and relax and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. First off, welcome to the show, man. I really appreciate you joining the Mentors for Military show. You're on here, of course, as I mentioned, with Eric and myself, Robert. And what I wanted to do is I, I thought it might be kind of cool to start off, Jay, with your background. I know that you came in, or at least at one period of time, you were in 18 Delta. So was that something that you joined the military as in an 18 X-ray program, or did you carry another MOS part of that? Uh, before that, I was a I was a 19 Delta. So Get out of here, joined- Cav Scout. Yeah, yeah. I'm a 19 um, uh, Kilo. So I started out as a 19 uh Echo. Well, the thing is, oh, so you were on N60s before the Abram. Oh, yeah. Is that it? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Well, uh, so basically my selection of MOS, so I was a Navy brat. I was born in Tampa, grew up all over, um, didn't know anything about the military other than what little bit I, I, I saw from the Navy. So I was a D student in Powder Springs, Georgia. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out of high school. And one day I walked into the lunchroom and there was Staff Sergeant Sonia uh, or Tanya Santana, my re- soon-to-be recruiter. I was like, well, hey, that's it, man. There's the answer. Figured that out. Uh, chose the MOS purely based off what had the coolest video. You know, yeah. back then there were those big old laser discs. Oh, yeah, I remember those things. Watch. Boy, you're, you're, we're dating ourselves here, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, well, can, I can remember it's those. Really, it's not really dating ourselves so much as dating the technology of the recruiter. Oh, that's true, that's true. That's you know true. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's true, because we, we had those, uh, God, I can't remember. I think if I remember correctly, they were called join systems or something like that. This big box that uh, had all these videos. You could take a pre-exam for the ASVAB and the whole bit. And they had these laser discs, like you're talking about, that looked like a big record. Yeah, and it had like a, like a three-minute video on it. Right. How bad technology was. But <laughs> any MOS and career selection prior to going SF. So... That was in the 90s. It was Clinton was president. It was during the uh, the drawdown. To some extent, it was the army was fresh off the heels of Black Hawk Down. Um, so, by and large, the idea that we were going to deploy to a semi non permissive environment was just taken off the table after Black Hawk Down. Yeah. So, <clears throat> basically, I knew as long as Clinton was president and we stayed on the current trajectory, I wasn't going to be doing shit in that MOS. Loved the MOS. Yeah. I, I really did. Um, I loved going to gunnery, loved doing all that stuff, had a blast doing it. The problem is with the budget constraints, we really didn't do anything. So my experience in the conventional army was basically I was in the motor pool dry sweeping oil stains. That's what I did for four years. Oh, yeah. Where were you at? Fort Carson and uh, Fort Stewart. Fort Carson, Fort Stewart. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so were you third ID at that time frame? Third, yeah, I was third ID when I was at Fort Stewart. Um, I was a 3-7 cab. And when I was at... Fort Carson, I originally got there when it was 4th ID, so I was in 110 cab. I was a Buffalo soldier, Okay. which uh, I kept my regimental affiliation all the way up until they penned 18 series, and I had to switch it out, but my, my DUI for my, my class A's was a uh, Buffalo soldier. Oh, that's awesome, man. 
And it's funny because later on, this Buffalo Soldier thing keeps popping up in some of these local uh, circuits here. And, and I'll tell them, like, I'm a legit Buffalo Soldier. And they look at me like, whatever. And I, and I, <laughs> yeah, you don't look like a Buffalo Soldier. <laughs> no, but the unit does exist. It's still around. Fourth uh, ID left and third ACR came to Fort Carson, and I was in third squadron, third ACR. Uh, and then that was basically it. So when I got to Fort Stewart, I was starting to trying to kind of weigh my options and see where I was going to go. I made E5, you know, I was starting to make some progress in the world. But then I basically came down on orders for drill sergeant school and which cut all my plans off. And I don't know about you, but to me, drill sergeant looks fun for about a cycle or two. Right. But after about three years, there's just no way. Ah, it's, it sucks. Well, I'm usually guys came down on either drill sergeant or recruiter duty. Well, recruiter. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't want to do it. That's what it boiled down to. I it's, And I know what I'm about to say sounds mean, but I didn't like the privates that I had. So why you want to give me 50? And then when I finally get them squared away, you're going to take them away and give me another batch of goobers. Start all just, over. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't like babysitting. I, I hated it. I hated micromanaging. But that's at the time, that's what being an NCO felt like. It was about micromanaging uniform because there was no war to fight and we, there was no money to train with. So we spent our days telling people to cut their hair, shine their boots and, and study for an E5 board we were never going to send them to. Right. And it was DA Select. Um, I, I had, at the time, remember they gave us telegraphs back then? We oh, called yeah. them the D, DA Screw You Grams. So, so I called up the 1 800 number they had on there and I asked, hey, how do I get out of this? And they basically told me, look, you got two options. You can go to SFAS, yep. Special Force Selection, or you can go flip burgers. And I was like, well, shit. Like, you know, nothing in the middle. Like, no, it's DA Select, how this works. I was like, okay. So at the time, I, I, I decided, look, I'll go to selection once. If I make it, uh, great. If not, I guess I'll go flip burgers. Yeah. So I went to SFAS. I mean, that was about all the rationale. I mean, I trained up for it and took it seriously. You know, um, I, you know, and of course, uh, you know, being in a CAD unit, what do we know? So I went to selection. I got selected and finished out a couple months left on the one-year requirement at Fort Stewart. Then reported to the Q course, and I don't remember when I reported to the Q course. Did you have a, a delay where you went back home for a period of time, or? Yeah, I mean, so I had got the Fort Stewart at a minimum when you PCS, and I'm I'm, I'm sure it's changed now. Yeah, um, you owe them a year when you get there. So I think I got selected like two or three months after I got there, and I was basically just waiting for the next class date that started after my year was up. So I had orders; I just couldn't leave before I don't remember when. Yeah, that's stuck. But, yeah. Well, that was awesome because basically the unit only knew I only had like six or seven months left, so they more or less didn't monkey with me. They didn't put you in the armor room or do something like that to make a good no, use of they, the time. They let me. <laughs> they let me stay in my section. They let me be a, be squad leader and you know Commander Bradley. They they didn't they didn't bump me off all that, right. but more or less they knew that's where I was going to be coasting, so I didn't have to worry about. It was nice. They they did me right. Yeah. So uh, I got to the Q course. I think it was the end of 98 or the beginning of 99 or something like that. I think it was 99. Um, you think I'd know, but I don't. I can't remember any of it nowadays. <laughs> I did I did SUT, froze my ass off out there at Camp McCall. So this had to be 99. And then, uh, you know, I started the med course. I started the med course, I think, believe the class number was 4-00. I'm a little rusty on it. Um 
But I started in basically the beginning of January of 2000, and the entire year of 2000, I was in the med course. Yeah, that's a long period of time. Yep, I did my second clinical rotation at the end of uh, SFMS, which is the SF portion, of the 18 series portion of the course. And then went into Christmas break and then, you know, did Robin Sage Language School in SEER. Yeah, so let's back up a second. So you spent a year within this course. What were some of the things that you actually took away from that? Because I remember a period of time, and, and again, this is a long time ago, it seems like I remember or recall stories of how people would go through that training and they had to keep an animal alive or they had to do something of that nature. And I think that moved forward into uh, to something entirely different today. But what was some of the training that you had to go through in that period that you went through? Um, so what you're talking about is life tissue training. It's kind of a touchy subject, largely because animal rights groups, uh, they frown upon it. Sure. As, as they are one to do. But nowadays, there's also some less scrupulous reasons why it's frowned upon. You know, these mannequin companies get in there and they, they throw their dollars in on getting rid of it. So you buy their mannequins and, you know, it's, there's, there's some of that politic plan. But uh, at the end of the day, you, you can't simulate life. You can't, you know, no matter how realistic that dummy looks, I know it's not alive. You know, I know it. You can tell me to pretend like it is, but I know it's, I know it's a dummy. Right. So, you know, you do a lot of advanced trauma training on what we call role models. And I'll leave it at that. I don't want to be the guy that gets the schoolhouse in trouble. Yeah. Um, it's world-class training in a year. I went from, I failed combat lifesaver when I was in the big army. I couldn't get an IV. Can you imagine that? And then, uh, I passed the med course somehow, but yeah, you learn a lot. It was life changing. And, and it's, it's, they, the, the special forces cadre and the SEALs and pretty much all the soft cadre down at SOM TV, I mean, they really are world-class instructors. And they know you don't know what they know. So they explain and they really put emphasis behind the concepts and the why and what they're trying to create are critical thinkers. And they do a real good job at that. So after a year of med training, um, I was really competent and confident in my ability to do fairly advanced skills with relatively limited, you know, clinical experience. You get some, but you, you know, it's limited. You're in the course. Right. Um, but yeah, at the end of the year, I mean, shoot, I knew drugs. I knew all, all of them. Uh, I mean, so you're docked. Really yeah. I mean, you're basically docked everybody there. And so what, what is the difference then between that training and say, uh, were the Rangers beside you during that segment or where was it that they phased in? Cause I know a okay. lot of the Rangers are going through similar training as well. Right. Yeah. So it, the course is more or less configured approximately the same where the, the year for, for an 18 Delta is basically broken down into two halves. The first half is SOCOM special operations, combat medic, it's, um, you know, not to minimize it, but it's basically a, a, a super paramedic. Mm -hmm. It's a super paramedic that's got some pharmaceutical skills, got some diagnostic skills and a few advanced uh, trauma procedures. And the but they're trauma focused. The second half of the course, SFMS or whatever it's called nowadays, they keep changing it. That's uh, where you focus on your clinical skills. Like, you know, you do your own labs like we draw our own blood and. We do our own blood typing. Uh, we get in the microscope and we look for parasites in your stool. We take all of our own x-rays and develop nice. the pictures. We do it all. Yeah. Um, and that's what you're learning on the second half. It's the less sexy but strategically more important skill set uh, for, for guys who have some staying power downrange. Uh, you know, you're, all, you're isolated. You're all alone. And it's, it's the premise of prolonged field care. 
Which is basically what the military needs to go more into, right? Because, I mean, there was a or, period of- or, or correctly go back to. Well, that's very true. Yeah. So, I mean, there was such a focus on just tactical me- uh, medicine and, you know, combat medics and everything else. But now the emphasis is really about, hey, we not, may not be able to get to you. There may be a period of time in which you've got to keep the patient alive and keep them sustained in such a way until help can arrive, basically. Well, that's always been the criteria. So the reason why, why reason why prolonged field care is kind of in vogue now is because, by and large, the DoD got spoiled with rapid access. You know, helicopters on tap, hospitals all over the place. And I'm not saying we got lazy, but the, you know, they're fighting the battle that they have. And in the battle that they had, they had access to infrastructure. So they developed their TTPs and and, and continue to groom themselves along those lines. Well, lo and behold. As the war died down and the geopolitical and ecosystem around the war changed, uh, prolonged field care necessarily had to come back into play because all those aviation assets and hospital assets are slowly but surely drying up. So that old 18 Delta skill set comes back into play under prolonged field care, despite the fact that, you know, I'd say about 10 years, it just, we focused mostly on SOCOMs, largely because, you know, we had shorty back times. Yeah, such a critical factor. And I mean, like you said, especially in the war today where you have less and less conventional forces that may be there, even in a supporting element, um, it's going to become more and more critical for people on the battlefield to be able to understand how to pro- prolong or sustain and get back to some of those basics, but even learn some of the advanced techniques like uh, taking and and doing uh, blood transfusion right there between two patients. Oh, yeah, you know, sure. two, yeah. yeah. I mean, really cool stuff that's going Again, on. Again, old there. technology. That is old technology and old methodology. We're, we're basically bringing back into the limelight. So <clears throat> you look at some of the advanced techniques and that, that we're kind of pushing by today's standard. They're not new. I mean, whole blood transfusions, plasma, all that stuff. That's, I mean, I, there's pictures of people doing plasma transfusions on, on the beaches of D-Day. Uh, there's whole blood pictures out there, you know, from World War II. Uh, but then component therapy kind of came into favor, I'm going to guess around the sixties, maybe certainly during the Vietnam area. And we switched to component therapy over whole blood, because when you separate the contents of the blood, they store better. Mm. Uh, Talk about for like coagulation and stuff and the concern of that or, uh, well, they just, you know, whole blood has got a limited shelf life. Right. So when you hear the term walking blood bank, it's because I don't want to pull the unit out of it until I'm pretty sure I'm going to need it or I need it. Um, but component therapy, once I pull that unit out, they separate into three basic, you know, packed RBCs, plasma and cryoprecipitate, uh, those things store, they got shelf life. Um, so component therapy was very popular and basically a cottage industry and, uh, a whole skill set came out of, you know, phlebotomy and came out of the component therapy piece. And I suspect largely, again, I suspect, uh, the component therapy cottage industry is probably our number one opponent scientifically for getting whole blood back onto the battlefield. Huh. Um, there's, not, there's a lot of data out there that supports whole blood. You know, like some of these lifelike crews, if you get hit by a car and they start pushing their blood products, I mean, their protocols are, hey, give them packed RBCs, plasma, cryoprecipitate. Well, put them together, you got whole blood. So <clears throat> it's it's not national. It's not you know, widely used, but it's out there. Yeah. And there's mountains of data supporting the efficacy of whole blood transfusions because it's not new. It's not new. It's been around forever and ever. This is rock solid ironclad evidence. It's just a matter of getting people to, you know, switch modalities and, you know, 
kind of accept the new old science as the solution to our prolonged field cares issues moving forward. It's interesting, too, when we start talking about things like tourniquets and how we were trained back in the day, you and I, in terms of what a tourniquet is and when you apply it and all that. And it's usually one of those last case scenarios, whereas today a tourniquet is much more important and it's probably the most important thing to understand. Well, it's, it's one of them. Uh, yeah. So when I learned it was response to the breathing, bleeding, fractures, burns, shocks, concussions. Uh, that's what we learned in our CTT manuals. And then the elevation of hemorrhage control relative to that old, uh, we used to call them the smart books, but that old smart book oh, yeah. uh, methodology. But basically what changed uh, tactical medicine, the event that changed tactical medicine was, in fact, Black Hawk Down, which ironically is their anniversary day. Uh <clears throat> So Black Hawk Down, prior to Black Hawk Down, special operations medics, by and large, had to get their clinical expertise and their clinical time in either civilian hospitals or military hospitals. Uh, in order for those hospitals and practitioners to allow those medics to come in, there had to be some type of credential. You know, they don't just let people in off the street. So the credential that was largely chosen was like a National Registry paramedic EMT level credential. It's less than what the guys can actually do, but nonetheless, it's the credential they had. So what we ended up doing was creating a military trauma model that mirrored the, the, the civilian trauma model. It was very EMS-centric. Uh, everybody got IVs, uh, all that stuff. And what you saw in the Black Hawk Down, not the movie, but if you read the book, it's got a little bit better breakdown. And, of course, you can interview the guys who were there. Uh, what we saw is that that, that, that created a, a ton of problems. I mean, a lot of new TTPs, these are standard TTPs by today. They're not groundbreaking, but coming out of Black Hawk Down, these would be groundbreaking TTPs. Uh, they evaluated the evidence. You know, we had, you know, there's a total of 19 casualties, but really 18 during the battle. And then, you know, we, we had a guy get killed by a mortar after the fact. So there's your 19, but 18 during the battle. They divided up the wound distribution patterns and the treatments that were put in there. And then they decided, hey, you know what? This didn't work. So let's go a new way. And the military trauma model, or TCCC, but the, uh, as it's formally known, but that military trauma model where we address life threats early, uh, it was basically functionally born out of Black Hawk Down. So when I went to the course, I learned uh, in 2000 what is nowadays TCCC. That's just what was taught. We didn't call it that, and we renamed stuff. So it was life threats ABCs instead of March. But functionally, it was all the same stuff. Um, so initially what happened is after so September 11th is what what basically galvanized uh, what is today's TCCC. So between Black Hawk Down and September 11th, more or less, you know, civilian practitioners and, and hospital systems, they, they all but laughed at the military, you know, soft medicine. Like, you guys are crazy. There's no way we're touching that. So we were pretty much running on our own and doing the best we could to, to get our guys that, that clinical experience because, again, the civilian population simply wouldn't replicate the effort. However, September 11th happened, and the casualties started to come in. It was a trickle at first, and then, as you know, the intensity of the war kicked up. Uh, we started to get a steady flow. But there was a massive disparity between the success and the soft side of the house versus issues that the conventional forces were facing. So when you're doing, like, more or less a patient-for-patient breakdown, they couldn't figure out what we were doing differently uh, than what they were doing. And we explained it to them the concept behind TCCC and it slowly started to migrate its way out to the conventional forces. And then the more and more people who used it, the more and more write-ups we were getting, the more data we collected, the more uh, obvious the TCCC, the military trauma model became more and more uh, relevant. It became backed up by data and, and raw information. 
specifically the Ranger Regiment, really perfected. Um, giving credit where credit's due, the Rangers knocked that out of the ballpark with their, their trauma registry system, and they're the ones who really put together the composite picture that, that created you know, the, the backdrop to the TCCC educational model. Uh, so, yeah, go Rangers. Yeah, they did that. Yeah, I often wondered which came first. I mean, and it's interesting to hear your side of the story because I, I wondered, okay, are, were we applying stuff that was being done from the medevacs and from the side here in the, the private sector or was it the opposite? And I had, of course, heard stories about the Rangers and like you had described there about how they really advanced medicine. But I thought even prior to that, um, there was a period of time of which there was a lot more that was coming out of the civilian side into the military as opposed to the opposite way around. No, I mean, once the numbers started coming off the battlefield, uh, the civilian guys basically had to take a look at us and start rethinking what they were doing. You know, numbers don't lie. Yeah. You can argue the merits of, oh, I don't like military men. Well, it's too bad. Look at our numbers. We're winning. Right. So the civilian guys are starting to see it's catching on. It's trickling, it's, it's trickling its way into a lot of systems via veterans through municipalities you know, veterans come to law enforcement offices and EMS offices that will already understand TCCC and are fairly competent in it. And they're the ones bringing that narrative directly to the municipal leadership. But yeah. hospital to hospital, you know, the TCCC committees has done a great job of publishing its data, its, its write-ups and its meeting. Well, not its data, but the joint trauma registries data. Uh, they've been doing a great job of going out there and seasoning these key leaders out on the civilian hospitals with uh, the technology and methodology behind the military trauma model. It's been a wild success. So I, I think nowadays you can look at people widely understand tourniquets are valuable. I mean, that that came right out of the military. As, as you would expect, most med major medical breakthroughs do come off the battlefield. This one's no different. But I think the biggest innovation relative to that to come off the battlefield wasn't a technological solution, but an academic solution. Uh, TCCC's, I think, greatest accomplishment was decentralizing the knowledge. Instead of keeping it at the doctors, the PAs, and the medics, we said everybody gets it. Mm. And that's what pushed the medicine to the point of injury. It wasn't that we had medics everywhere on standby to put tourniquets on. It's that we had infantrymen out there putting tourniquets on, and the medics come in and just check their work. Let me loosely, that's what they're doing. But it was the decentralization and the academic model that TCCC pushed that, that, that really changed the equation. Um, and that's what you're seeing out on the civilian side now. Everybody expects to get a tourniquet and expects to know how to use a tourniquet because that's what the military did. We decentralized it. That's really you know cool. No, I, I, when you start thinking about what you guys did in that sense, I mean, it makes really good sense. But then it also can start uh, blurring the lines between um roles and responsibilities and stuff for some people so they like to hold on to that knowledge you know you know what i mean it's kind of like knowledge is power so if i don't give you that and i don't pass it on to you um then i win you may not win but i win and in this yeah, case yeah. here it was a lot of uh selflessness that kind of came into this whole thing it sounds like and because you want to win on the battlefield it's not about trying to to satisfy people's egos which is good stuff and it's funny you put it that way, because that would be how I, I, I quantify most of my experience with conventional army leadership pre-war. Right. It was, if I know this, then I'm in charge. And if I tell you, then you, you know, you I have to follow. That. Yeah. 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 But on the soft side of the house, I mean, it wasn't necessarily that we were demanding and being selfless. It's that the data was out there and it was just raw. And what are you going to do? Look, we're saving lives. I mean, we didn't virtually no advertising requirement on our part. Look at our numbers. 
Um, and the big army finally started to kind of see the merit of what we were doing. And then they started to slowly adopt it. And, you know, it started to spread its way throughout the DOD. Now it's mandated DOD-wide. And I'm data-driven. So I, I always try to tell people and stuff that when you start quantifying it in such a way that you can remove the emotion out of the decision process, it makes it so much easier. Because then it's not an emotional decision. You're actually using the data. And like you said, the data speaks to you and it doesn't lie. It's there. It's right in front it, of it, you. It does. I think, you know... Uh, Scientifically, you know, the United States, we've got some issues with how we run data. You know, most of these studies are backed by funding. Funding is king. And it's hard to get funding unless you're doing something exciting and sexy. It's hard to get a scientific project funded to go out and evaluate, you know, pre-established data just to, just to check their work. And that stuff's important. We don't really do a lot of that in the U.S., but the military still does. Uh, the military likes to publish articles and publish data, and then they openly circulate it, and they're all about having the, the other institutions and branches come in and check their work and call them out. So in that way, the military has done very well. The military has also been very good at uh, analyzing data, uh, really from the get-go, because they always take the emotion out of it. A good example is I tell folks all the time, be careful how you read data, and this is the example I give. You know, when we first started issuing helmets in World War One, you know, the, the round saucer pan helmets, right. you know, uh, head injuries went up. And nobody could, initially could understand how, that, how that's the case. We're giving them helmets. Why are head injuries coming up? Um, by today's standard, you know, everybody would just shit can helmets. But luckily, the military thought it through and realized, hey, prior to the head injury, they just died. So they went from the dead category to the alive category. Now they can be registered. You know, the military is good at doing that. Right. Uh, Pretty simple equation on that one, though. Yeah, but, you know, these type of things happen. And that's, a, you know, reading data and, and, and analyzing the information is, is tricky. Again, the military, in theory, isn't politically oriented and, you know, it's pretty objective. It is pretty objective. Well, they don't really do that. You know, they, they look at the data raw and they, they make their studies, they, they do their analysis and they publish their findings. Well, that's part of the problem, too, I think you would say, and with that, at least I, what I think you're you're trying to state is that um, there's a challenge too in how people interpret and put out the data and it could be used in such a way that it can make things look a lot better and so to your point if you're looking at uh, potential government contracts or using of new technologies or equipment things could get skewed a little differently perhaps uh, because it could be whoever's got the um, the earshot of uh, yeah. the individual has the power yeah, and, that, and you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yep. You know, in many cases, it's about funding. I mean, I think last year there briefly was a trend out on the civilian side where people were trying to basically say that because of body armor, TCCC wound data doesn't apply because if you look at the wound dispersion patterns on the civilian side of the house, you know they're seeing thorax shots, they're seeing this, and they were trying to use that as the basis of debunking the military trauma model for EMS. It's, well, it's because they're, foc they're focused on preventable death in, in the military trauma model, not what killed them, not death. And, and I think that was the mistake the, uh, the civilian side went down. Is at no time has the military said, you know, these injuries are the number one cause. They're saying these are the most preventable deaths. You know, that's preventable death with, you know, extremity hemorrhage, you know, pneumothorax and airway compromise. Preventable is the key word that they excluded from their study. It didn't really go anywhere, but it was starting to gain traction. 
Wasn't there a recent so, article that we may have all read? Uh, at least I, I could have sworn I saw something about the body armor and how it's actually um, slowing our troops down or causing more difficulty or something. Like that it was it was meant to be more of you know should they even wear that? And, and uh, the short answer is yes. There's absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind that body armor is saving lives. If you compare the the wound rate per capita coming out of Vietnam to the global war on terror, it's not even close. Uh, and that can all be directly contributed to modern survival systems on the battlefield. Once again, it's all about how they're presenting the data, you know. You definitely bring up like that whole perception issue. And for sure, I mean, the body armor without a doubt has kept a lot of us alive. Because, I mean, you think about like even just watching the movie of We Were Soldiers and, and the data that was collected on, you know, exiting a, a helo on the battlefield there in Vietnam. Holy cow, how many guys might you know still have made it home had they had something on their chest plate as opposed to just their little rig yeah i mean we the, the number carries through how many people could have survived uh you know just using tccc so and, and that's a that's a that's a very relevant point because if you start talking about stuff like active shooters so uh, and we need to stop calling them that for one we need to call them mass cal events or, or mass murder if you, if you just need to make it scary but you take the, the, I believe it was the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, the gay bar that got hit right. a couple of years ago. More or less, the initial breakdown of the casualty rate was very simple. 50 injured, 50 dead. Called this kind of ahead of time. Of that category of 50 dead, how many of them belong in the other category had we just had basic TCCC countermeasures available? And, you know, you got to give the, the law enforcement and the municipalities time to work through the litigation piece. And trust me, they want to push the numbers out as fast as we want to get them. Well, the numbers did come back fairly recently, and they talked about, you know, the, the, the death rate and the wound patterns. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that if you just watch somebody bleed out of a gunshot from their thigh, a tourniquet will probably help. I mean, you got documented cases of that nightclub shooting where people are literally typing stuff uh, on Facebook and giving you a play-by-play of this dude bleeding out in front of them and nobody's helping them. So part of that comes to about a resilient population. Is Israel does a real good job of creating a resilient population. Uh, so does Japan. Japan's got an excellent resiliency program for, for emergency response within their population. We don't really do that. Mm-mm. And as far as the active shooter piece goes, we can never seem to get the – I break it down in two categories, you know, mitigate the threat and then mitigate the damage. We can never seem to get it past the first half of the category because everybody – you know, some people's positions on the Second Amendment – uh, and it's stalling out the work that we can do. So if we don't have the answer for the first half of the equation, well, we have a great answer for the second half of the equation, and that's mitigate the, mitigate the damage uh, through a better cohesive operations between, say, EMS and law enforcement. We can't seem to get there. So when I talk to these municipalities and agencies across the country, and they're all fractured and, con- and configured in different ways, they just can't seem to crack the Da Vinci Code on how to get medics up with their assault element uh, and I keep trying to tell them, it's like, look, every infantry platoon that goes out has a 68 whiskey or a corpsman with them. And it's fine. It's fine. They know their role. They know where they're supposed to go. They know what they're supposed to do. They follow the platoon sergeant around. They stay safe. They go to their CCPs. It's not an issue. And they're not even operating. Now, some units they are. But in general, in the conventional forces, they're, they're not even operating more or less as combatants. So the military model for you know, operational elements versus medical support being embedded internally as close to that point of injury is very valid. But you know, you got 
unions between the fire departments and police stations and then funding who funds the training is it ems training is it law it's a mess it's a real mess what if you push it back even further i mean a lot of people end up getting basic life-saving you know courses about how to clear the airway and all that kind of stuff and some of which even happens or occurs with uh within high schools or secondary schools or those types of things to your point of what you said happened within the military if how you started you know branching that out into the conventional army and really Realizing that the knowledge that's coming off the battlefield could be so important to any first responder, anybody that gets there and sees that type of wound that they can quickly assess it and prolong that person's life as much as possible, given the training that they were provided and the idea is to give them as much training as possible that they can retain. What if you push that back into an earlier age? What if there well, were I, more I people? We you know? Yeah. On a limited scale, I've advocated for, you know, these classes to be done in high school. Right. Uh, yeah, our Voluntary even, is, you know, for that matter. Yeah, our yeah. public education is a train wreck. It's a mess. Good yeah. luck getting it in there. But that's where I think it belongs. Uh, you should be getting that as part of your health class. Yeah, I remember receiving that, I think, as a sixth grader on even up to being a freshman or sophomore in my health classes. You know, you, you got the CPR trauma stuff and you had uh, yeah. the bat, the basic aid training classes. And I mean, I mean, I think it was even a part of some of the stuff that I did in the workforce when I, I mean, I worked at Arby's uh, when I was like a teenager. And I think that that was one of the things that we kind of had to know just in case if somebody had an accident of some sort on the on the job site. Yeah, I, I've basically in the past recommended 10 hours a semester starting in the ninth grade. And then, you know, testable at the gra before graduating high school. I mean, there's a resiliency program. Uh, again, it goes back to the academic innovation of the TCCC committee. It goes back down to decentralizing. Instead of trying to make these all powerful, all whatever, you governing know, bodies, right. governing bodies and these operative agents that we can't have everywhere, the answer is borrow a chat, uh, page from the military, decentralize this information to the lowest common denominator. And if that's your civilian force, you need to put it in your public education system. The, the fact that, you know, our law enforcement don't have a medic embedded typically. I mean, I think the SWAT may have somebody that's usually a little bit more savvy than maybe one, some other guy in the crew or whatever. But I mean, it's as simple as just doing that borrowing that page from the military because i mean I, I think about the fact that afghanistan it took, took a while to get a soft element this is just the exact same thing that we're thinking of here it's it's elementary and it works and i mean and it's vetted i mean we've got guys under fire every day just like you said that are just 68 whiskeys that are in the stack with people and then when it's time for them to go to work after you know the fire has calmed down we get them and they're taking care of the CCP or, you know, what casualties there are. And, and that's it. And and we're yeah. fully functional. Yeah, they're crushing it. I mean, the numbers don't lie. The, 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 the academic, the decentralization of the academic information, the pre-positioning of, of fairly high quality health care with the assault force, it, it, it's working. So <clears throat> because of litigation, now we have to give the law enforcement guys and the EMS guys uh uh, we got to give them some slack. They are under a heavy, heavy litigation. Oh, yeah. And everything they do is going to get touched by a lawyer. And I get that and I respect that. And that, that's, that's a massive hurdle for these guys to institute change within their institutions. However, some municipalities, uh, LAPD, SWAT, I know LA, somewhere in LAPD, I'm pretty sure it's SWAT, they use EMT trained uh, LEOs. 
And to me, that makes the most sense option. Look, if you can't close the gap between uh, your, your municipal EMS services and your law enforcement guys, perhaps the answer is just send a couple law, select law enforcement guys to an EMT course. And, and, exactly. And voila, your, your medic is on scene. Uh, he's, he's a credentialed officer. Problem solved. Yeah. Uh, and he can affect the handoff between, uh, between the two elements. I mean, even still, you you know, what we're talking about here is just the trying to educate the, the general populace. I mean, how many times do you see a bad car wreck or something along that, that lines on the, the side of the interstate? And, you know, the people who are there are the, the people who are have pulled over and tried to help. And they don't have usually any type of training. And it's quite a while in those types of situations before any first responder is going to arrive, let alone maybe even somebody that has those types of qualifications. Yeah, so the military trauma model, and, and I call it that because it's been exported to the civilian municipalities in the form of TECC, which is basically the twin brother of TCCC. And it, medically speaking, it's item for item, almost the exact same thing. When I won the TACMED contest, uh, I forget when it was, like 2016 or whenever it was, it was a TECC event, but medically, I was doing TCCC and I still won it. I mean, medically, it's the same. However, TECC borrows from relevant operational experience within law enforcement, and the language reflects the relevance of that operational experience. Okay. Medically, like I said, it's almost line for line the same stuff, although TCCC naturally pushes more towards prolonged field care in the end. So it's out there. It's out there. there there's channels for, for the different agencies to use. Uh, I think one of the big holdups in decentralizing this information are the I am not a fan of cards. I'm not a fan of credentials at this level. If you're an officer, you need to get covered under the Good Samaritan. The lawyers need to figure that out. Right. But when you start pushing cards, basically you're making it that much more possible to get this instituted into a particular agency. Right. Uh, you also limit the amount of, you know, how fast this information can be updated. Basically, because more bureaucratic, to, yeah. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you're only learning what's published in the book, and at best, they're only going to update that book every two years, despite the fact the information's updated as frequently as quarterly. Well, sure, because, so, I mean, again, it's, it goes down to just the cost. It costs more to update the book, and therefore, we can't do that at this period of time. It's ching, ching. It's all about yeah, money. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's all it boils down to. So <clears throat> when, you, when you adopt a system like that, by the time you got your entire force trained and certified, let's say, on TECC from the NAMT, um, by the time you got them all trained— you have to retrain them all again because none of the information is going to be current. So <clears throat> we, we need to empower cadre operations, just like the military. We need to give the law enforcement guys an empowered set of cadre to come out there and run their stuff. And how to do that, I don't know. I mean, the lawyers have just made it an absolute mess. Well, so. I think initially you probably have to engage you guys, uh, you know, people who have had that type of experience that can give that type of training and bring them in as consultants or contractors for some period of time until the force can be brought up to some period of, of level of expertise, I would think, you know. Yeah, and I think that's why some of the senior trainers, uh, and I like to consider myself a senior trainer, uh, understand instead of me offering classes to train all 500 of your officers, you need to hire me to come in to train your, your cadre, train the trainer, and then you have your cadre go out and populate the force. What these guys want or should want is that internal capability. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want to strike up a dope deal where these guys have to keep paying me and i got to keep coming back. It's sure. like, look, I'll come in. Let's build your program. You'll own the program. You can institute it at your leisure and your budget, you know, and you can run with it. But you know, Force but. multiplier mentality. 
Yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, train the trainer. I mean, that's the way to go. So I, I, for a time, I was offering classes to individuals and, you know, I made some money doing it, but I wasn't putting a dent in the system. I did some pro bono work with the Atlanta guys and through the pro bono work, started focusing on training the trainer and select staff. You know, we started to readily disseminate that, that, that information. And it's not even just the information. It's the training methodology. Yeah, how we train. The discipline, them, yeah. The discipline, you know, how, how to make it more realistic. What's too realistic? What's not enough realistic? How do you, how to, that, we got that experience. It, it's in there. We can manage. That's what we're used to doing is managing 500 to 1,000 basically employees and how to train them. Well, the fact um, that I live in Atlanta and you did that, I uh, appreciate that, man. That's good to know. <laughs> oh, right on. Uh, my gun range was in Conyers. Okay. Conyers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. And I think, you know, Atlanta, of course, has one of the, I, I would say, one of the best uh, trauma centers in Grady Hospital. And, oh, sure. Uh, yeah, and just knowing with that type and size of population – and again, the type of infrastructure and the channels of communication that has to go on and everything else, knowing that the the people have worked it out within that size area should give hope to even smaller municipalities who are considering something like this. What was the approach? You've already used it in a larger scale. How could we then scale that to something of, say, a county uh, or um, a small town or something like that that doesn't want to, to your point, spend a whole lot of money, but needs to have the discipline, the training, and the expertise to be able to carry that forward. Yeah, and it's a tough nut to crack. Uh, again, you got unions. Yeah, you got you. These you got the the mayors. You got the the local politicians that are above the leadership. Um, there's a lot of players that are involved. So I'm I'm very reluctant to offer a federally subsidized solution. Hmm. However, uh, in most cases, really all that needs to happen in order to get the system kick-started is somebody's just got to figure out who the hell is going to pay for it. Um, and That's always the system. case, though. You know, you know yeah, no so, matter what so it I'm is. I'm not yeah. suggesting the federal government needs to pay for it. I'm not a fan of us doing that. Right. But, you know, if they offer to get kickstart the first class, you know, that prime program, that, that initial program, that might be enough for most municipalities to, to generate momentum moving forward. And my challenge to the law enforcement officers, or sp specifically the leadership, uh, when it comes time to do the TAC med training, I mean, think of the optics of it. Uh, here's our law enforcement officers out there learning how to save lives, it, basically learning a skill other than the use of it. How can they report build with a community? I mean, that that's a great thing. You can start putting a positive spin because, yeah, we know that there's bad apples in the bunch. That happens everywhere. And unfortunately, that seems to be what we exaggerate across the media tables yes. as opposed to like a good news thing where, you know, hey, uh, a police officer happened to see somebody that was you know, down and unconscious and was able to save their life because he or she knew, you know, whatever uh, medical techniques needed to be applied to, you know, save that life. If you were able yeah. to, to go with a municipality that actually had a best in class story, in other words, they, they're utilizing, let's take Atlanta as an example, um, that has proven now through statistics how better they are in not only just equipped but how many lives that they've helped prolong or save or something of that nature um, that could be used in the media in terms of a best in class and how this could apply and it's a relatable story 
I just got to believe that there's enough people in the general populace that could listen to this. And in some cases, you may be only talking about raising your taxes in a local community by half a penny or something of that nature. You know, I mean, it usually doesn't cost that much depending upon the size of the community to be able to know that if my son or daughter or my wife or whatever uh, or a husband is in a car accident or, uh, God forbid, in a mass shooting, an active shooter situation or Whatever the case may be, I know that people are going to be trained and equipped to be able to provide that long-term, uh, you know, help. Well, you know, it's still relatively new in Atlanta. Uh, specifically, their TFO program is where we we mostly focus that stuff. So, but however, North American Rescue uh, they do a great job. They do a great job promoting the day-to-day events that happen nationwide of law enforcement officers either yeah. taking care of themselves or taking care of their population. Uh, there are active groups out there that are kind of pushing this concept. It is catching on. Uh, it's just slow. It's slow. So there, it is. We, sh- we should be hopeful looking ahead, but it's, you know, we got to be patient. It is. And you're right. Those guys do a great job. I, I've, I've taken note of some of their stuff recently and I, I really dig like what they put out and I, and it is, it neat. We need that positive spin. And I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole, but I think that we as a society are starting to get to that point where we're tired of seeing all the silly propaganda stuff that's put in front of us. Like, let's start seeing what's real. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff is just noise. And I I think what's good about the way North American Rescue does it is, uh, you know, most of these folks are veterans, you know, that they, they, they talk to. And after they transition out of active service, they, they, they still continue to serve in some capacity within the municipalities, and they, they carry that with them. Uh, they advocate the program, and then, you know, as word gets out and spreads nationally, you know, it just it generates more and more momentum, and, and things happen. I mean, you look at Stop, Stop the Bleed campaign, uh, is a pretty good example of, of basically something that started as a way to bridge that gap between the military trauma model and its proven data and how to get it in a cost-effective way into as many cities as possible in the United States. So Stop the Bleed is a good example. And again, NAR is another proponent of Stop the Bleed, as as many others are. When you were in uh, Special Forces, how many of the different units and stuff that you were in that uh, maybe exposed you to different trauma or different types of situations that allowed you to grow um, as an 18 Delta or as a a medic in that sense? Was it... Something that you saw based on the different units? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, usually what happened is, you know, if I showed up and clearly I haven't shaved in a month, you know, I'm dressed like a pirate. Uh, If I go into the CCPs and say, hey, I want to help, they usually let me. So, but what what helped me the most (laughs) is I had a team sergeant, JJ. um, I think he just retired recently out of SOCOM. But my team sergeant was big into the medic. So we would just sit there when we had nothing to do and just listen to the radio calls. And when they would come out, we'd go tear ass and down there and we'd help them. We'd drop first aid. You know, I'd be out there running TCCC on these guys and helping them do the revacs. You know, they'd even ask for us, but that's how we did it. And not to mention I had, uh, you know, countless uh, uh, host nation guys to, to work on plus civilians. And I got a lot of hands-on experience. But and one thing that's important to understand, and I know this sounds snotty, TCCC needs SOF. SOF doesn't need TCCC. Hmm. The 18 Deltas and Sockums are just going to do whatever they're going to do. And if it happens to coincide with the TCCC, awesome. But at the end of the day, they're running their own stuff. TCCC as an academic model is, is a way to capture that, that soft goodness and export it and get it down to, to every fueler, 
you know, every, every infantryman, every truck driver, you know, that's what TCCC is. So they like to use soft stuff. So as an 18 Delta, I could basically do whatever I wanted. So if it made sense to me and I had the experience, you know, I would love to use TCCC stuff if it made sense. But if I did my own thing, I could do my own thing too. I know we're partial being that we are from group, but I, I would agree. I mean, we, and it's a proven data fact. I think we have over 60% of the casualties uh, in the soft community as uh, Green Berets in OIF and OEF. And I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure uh, some of it even calculates into some of the stuff that we've done in the uh, SOCAF region. So I, I completely agree that a lot of the things that our Deltas have done to either conduct some sort of uh, trauma care or experiment at times even too – it, it it has contributed to the TCCC methodology. I'll probably oh, PJs sure. and and uh, mm-hmm. and Rangers, of course, as well as we were talking oh, about yeah. earlier. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, don't forget, you know the the, the IDCs, uh, the soft IDCs, uh, the Marsoc guys. All all the, all that stuff is is just contributing to that to that 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 data pool that we use to decentralize. Uh, SOCOM, SOCOM as a whole yeah. has done a great job in, in in helping you know sprinkle that knowledge out. Absolutely. That's the best part about medicine. It's not classified. We can talk about it openly. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I think everybody can clearly understand because they either have been in a situation or they know of somebody that's probably been in a situation where they had to provide some kind of you know, care or, or assistance or something of that nature, especially with the number of accidents and car or automobile accidents or life-threatening situations and stuff that people are finding themselves, you know, now more and more active shooter, it just makes all that much more sense to understand not only what you're supposed to do in the event that there's an active shooter, shooter situation, and Mike Glover and I did a podcast on this, uh, did an episode, I should say, on this podcast uh, probably about two years ago, which we both still share. And um, and yet there is also that side of it that, listen, you might not be able to escape the situation. So in the event that you can't, you should then understand how to provide aid to those who may end up getting, uh, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately get hit. So I, I like to call the military, when, I, when I'm speaking to civilians, I like to use the term austere medicine. Uh, and there's basically a couple ways I see you being trapped in a situation where the military trauma model would be valuable for you. You're either separated from, from you know, role to uh, healthcare through time or space or some type of geography or you're going to be placed in, or some type of environmental event, or you're going to be placed in a situation where the responders are so overwhelmed, they just can't get to you. It's not that they won't get to you, it's that they can't get to you in a timely fashion. Uh, and I use the example of a couple years ago, there was a snowstorm that happened in Atlanta, um, and it just shut oh, yeah. the city down. Shut it, it down. Did. Oh, yeah, you were there. Snow oh, yeah. And it was one of those things that everybody picks on us from there, but uh, the reality of the matter is, is that what happened is, and there's a series, and people may have read various different things, so I'm going to kind of lay that whole thing out. Um, first off, the, it started snowing, and so people started leaving work, and schools started shutting down. The problem was then is that as people started getting on their roads. Not only did the traffic end up becoming worse, but it also created a pattern of where the the moisture or the water from the snow then became slush and turned to ice as the temperature started to fall. Now you have a really bad situation because now snow becomes ice. Ice becomes where vehicles just cannot 
you know, maneuver and stuff in high traffic and high volume situations. And so the city was brought to its knees because of poor planning on the part of so many different factors. But it's not like you could even have gotten ahead of that because yeah. it happened so quickly and everybody, it was a mass exodus well, type well, of situation. I, I, that's where I kind of disagree. I okay. think two things caused the, the issue in the, in the Atlanta thing. And this is important to understand for your own stuff. One, the Atlanta leadership completely blew it off. Blew well, they it did. Off, blew they it did. Off, blew I would agree with that. Yeah. And Al Roker even called them out. You know, <clears throat> they just completely blew it off. But I don't know if you remember. I do because I had to go pick up at the time my fiance, now my wife. I had to go pick her up on the other side of Atlanta. Uh, oh, basically, it's like, oh, crap, the snow is coming in. They just said, all right, everybody go home. Yeah. So they released all the schools and all the government workers and all, all at the same time, all during lunch and gridlock. Two million people. Boom, yeah, two done. million people. Every Yeah. So I, I got us home. It took me 11 hours. I know how to drive in the snow and ice. Thankfully, I, I was stationed in Fort Carson for a while. So I was able to get the car home. It wasn't that big a deal. But what we saw coming out of that was, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but they, was, they put it out of the radio. Hey, look, uh, we're not responding to car accidents unless there's three or more vehicles involved. And then all the pictures of ambulances with patients in the back just stuck on the interstate. So that's a situation where if you find yourself, and again, it's kind of extreme, but it's a good example of how if you're at home chopping firewood and you drop a chainsaw on your foot, hey, guess what? You can call 911 until you're blue in the face. Ain't nobody coming. They're just not coming. And there's not a war. There's no meteor strike. There's no zombie apocalypse. Just poor planning and poor execution led to a scenario where you, the citizen, are going to have to know uh, some first aid skills. And what's unique about the military trauma model and why I think it's so relevant as, dare I say, a prepper skill, but really an individual survival skill, is that from a, from a medical modality, it is designed around no support, no backup. So naturally, if you call 911 and they're going to be here in 15, 20 minutes, you know, do what you got to do. But if you find yourself in a position where EMS isn't coming for another hour, you're stuck, buddy. You're stuck. It's you. It's you. And then there's nobody, there's nobody to blame, you know, and I, and I hate to be coy about it, but at the end of the day, you're it. What are your best 911? You're absolutely nailing it, man. And that's, I think that's why people have a hard time dealing with this is they want to think that the only time that medicine is going to be necessary is in the worst case scenario of like some sort of apocalypse. And then when time push comes to shove, when it's something like that, where you, you just don't have access to med stuff, you know, what are you going to do and how are you going to do it? I only and, need to know it when the president texts me and he did it at two eighteen today. So that means that, you know, I don't have to worry about it till the next time. Exactly. Did you get one of those texts? I didn't know if you got one of those personal texts. I, uh, you just, I, I did not. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. I just hit clear. Like, yeah, <laughs> but no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think you're hitting spot on into the challenge that people have out there is that typically we live in bubbles and we don't want to, to worry about those types of things or think about it or take some kind of initiative to learn more or whatever until it becomes in our, our space, our, you know, our bubble. Yeah. So, Again, going being a data guy, one of the ways I kind of motivate folks, especially if they love to shoot, and I love shooting. I'm 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 probably one of the most pro two A guys out there in that I'm all about everybody should own a machine gun and an RPG. Repeal the NFA, <laughs> get what you want, go buy a howitzer. Because I just don't believe that's how humans. Hum, I just don't yeah. believe humans behave. I, I've been to these countries where they're all armed. They didn't do any of the stuff everybody's accusing them. None of that happened. So I, I suspect largely, you know, we're all the same. Anyway, point. Uh, <laughs> you know, where was I going with that? I got slightly caffeinated. 
All right, anyway. Oh, data, data. So guys like to go out and shoot, spend tons of money. So there's, there's two data points, and I'm going to fudge them because it's been a little bit since I put them together. But by the most liberal estimates, when you go on these anti-gun webpages and you look at the numbers of, of casualties they try to attribute to, to gun ownership, at best, these guys are coming up with 20,000. And I mean at best. They're coming up with 20,000. And, and, and let's be clear. I don't believe they're 20,000 number, right? Because you know how they fudge the numbers. Uh, if somebody got killed in an NBA and a, and a gun was in the car, oh, that's, that's a casualty. I mean, that's the kind of stunts they pull to get those numbers up. At right. best, these guys are able to pull up 20,000 you know, casualties nationwide, which from a percentage standpoint is virtually nothing. However, over a million people were, were admitted to the hospital from the emergency room alone. So in the, the sheer likelihood of a, an emergency that you are going to face as a civilian, private, non-military or otherwise, the numbers show you need to know more about first aid than you need to know about shooting in terms of your own self-preservation. You, know, right. you need to learn how to shoot. Don't take that. Out, I hope nobody takes that out of context. You need to master that weapon. But at the end of the day, if you're committing to learning how to shoot, the numbers suggest you need to learn how to learn medicine also. Learn how to do medicine as well. You have to. Because for every reason you're learning to shoot, self-defense, you're your own 911, you need to throw your medical stuff in there. Well, I, that kind of goes with everything. I mean, right? I mean, like we go back to what we were talking about before. If you're going to go out there and work on a chainsaw and, and cut down trees, you better understand first aid in the event something accidentally happens. Um, and if you start using that same type of thing throughout our whole life and everything that we're doing, the more that you understand the first aid and, and how to take care and maintain yourself and your family and those that are close to you, the better off that you're going to be. And that's true for anything, understanding you know, any type of knowledge of how to, um, to sustain yourself, I guess, in the longer term. I don't know if I'm rambling on here, but no, I mean, Americans as a whole, you know, and I, and I hate to jump on the, the lazy American bandwagon, but the more and more we get into subdivisions and the more and more we get into just becoming dependent on an economy, you just, the more and more you start seeing people getting away from that, do it yourself. Uh, it, we're just moving away from it. We're just moving away from it. But, you know, my philosophical speech is the more you can do on your own, the more food you can produce, the more defense you can perform, the more medicine you can do, right. uh, the more free you are. And we seem to be going away from that trend and we're, you know, in favor of, you know, I'd rather go buy it than learn it. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going with. There are a lot more people, I think, that are out there. You know, I mean, you see a lot more shows, at least, and bringing attention or awareness to people who are wanting to co go off the grid or wanting to do things that are more self-sustaining. And uh, but maybe maybe they have different reasons as to why they're doing that. To me, those shows are canned. They're paid for by the advertisers, you know. Yeah, true. Uh, and the idea is, that, you know, they want you to buy their products. So when they pick people who go up to do that, they pick the biggest losers they can find. Uh, with the idea that if you don't buy their products, you're a loser like these guys. That's what I think is going on. Uh, I was just trying to paint like, a prettier picture here, Jay. You're kind of killing uh, no, it. <laughs> just, you, know, you know, it's like you take doomsday preppers and all that other stuff. I mean, what are they doing? They're throwing up these softballs and I, I don't know. So I, I think some of the new shows that are coming out, I know Mike Lover and them have got some shows. He got picked up for a show and get for them. I think that would be it's certainly worth a watch. But uh, kind of that old cast that kind of set the narrative painted everybody like losers. And the reality of it is, this is stuff that my parents did. It was normal for my parents to set food back. They can. That's just what they did. They grew up poor. Uh, and, and their parents uh, grew up in the Depression. 
well, maybe my parents and grandparents did. I don't know about, you know, nowadays. But, nowadays, yeah. 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 But that, that was normal. It was normal to have, you know, an, the, the, the ability to r- raise your own garden and, and provide for yourself because that's what you had to do. And now all of a sudden it's weird to want to do that. No, you're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, they go so far as to say that uh, as far as your eating habits and what you're putting into your body, start looking at what it is that your grandparents ate. You know, would they have ate that? So if you read the back of a can or you read the back of a a box or whatever, and you can't name half the ingredients and stuff, is that the kind of stuff that your grandparents would have ate back in that that period? Uh, And that kind of starts telling you how much healthier it is or less healthy it is and that type of thing. I know we're getting a little bit off track, but I think it... It, it's it goes well, into. I'm also on my like my second big cup of coffee, so <laughs> see that. if I start going, man, I'm going to take off. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, overall, like having a knowledge of medicine and the you know basics for your first aid, kind of teaches you more of an appreciation for either your sport, whether it be shooting or rugby or you know whatever the case may be. It gives you an idea as to you know the appreciation and the knowledge of like how your body works and why your body works, quite honestly. And then what's happening when, and in the shooting aspect from a uh, combat or, you know, law enforcement perspective, you know, what, what's going to happen in the event that that, that bullets coming the other way towards you. Mm-hmm. What are some of the tips or things that you can give to people uh, real quick on as in terms of maybe something that they can remember, or maybe it's about, um, you know, seeking out a training facility or someplace that they can go to have to learn more of these skills. More learn, learn more of these skills. Social media is a very powerful tool. We like to shit talk it, but you know, the reality it's 2018. Yeah, it's, it's 2018 and, and just embrace social media and be done with it. Uh, but if you, if you, if you follow along Instagram and you start going down this stuff and you start getting uh, interested in it, I mean, there's no shortage of companies that are out there. If you, if you Google, if you just Google, hey, TACMED or Austere Med Training, I mean, you're going to get thousands of hits, and you can even localize the search to it's close well, to we you. Mentioned, we mentioned North American Rescue. That's definitely one of them. That's probably uh, one well, of they're, the, they're, the Well, they're, I think they're going to start getting into training, but right now they're focused mostly on retail. But when you start pushing the training piece, thanks largely to the lar- to the veteran population, there is no shortage of trainers out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's basically you got to decide on what you, get, well, what you want to do, what flavor of training you want to kind of pick up, and then – more importantly, what type of budget you have. Yeah. Because uh, this stuff doesn't come cheap. cheap. And, I, and I know when I was running training, uh, the, the pricing of the courses was, was, was a constant, you know, issue. You know, how do we be competitively priced and still run stuff? But, you know, folks want what they can't have. You know, they want guys like me to be on standby to answer all their questions and give them classes and help them set their kid up. But, you know, my electricity doesn't run on hope and dream, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so either... I'm going to be available to, to run this type of service, which requires, you know, you know, compensation. Right. Or I'm going to have to God go forbid. Get a job. Yeah. Or I'm going to have to go get a job and you guys will just have to settle for the occasional Instagram post. <laughs> yeah. There are ways that you can uh, get paid uh, that way as well. What are some of the ways in which they can follow or learn or, or learn more about you and everything, Jay? Because I know you're out there on social media. You just mentioned Instagram. So what are some of the ways they can follow you? So right now, my, my primary communication conduit is the, my 18 underscore Zulu page on Instagram. Now, I, had, I haven't been broadcasting a lot of information, and that's because I recently took a job here. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles. I'm the COO of Fusion Tactical, uh, and that's where I'm at right now. So for the last month or two, there's not been a lot of information flow. It's mostly me just kind of maintaining the page and getting settled in here. But uh, as I move ahead with Fusion Tactical, 
you know, I'm going to get back into YouTube videos, but it's all going to be fusion tactical oriented. So Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, the usuals. Um, I am all about making recommendations to other companies, even if they're somewhat our competitor. Look, if people do good stuff and good products, I, I don't care. I'll put it out. So what you is know. Fusion Tactical? What, is, what do you guys specifically do? Uh, so Fusion Tactical right now makes uh, a lot of belts, a lot of uh, helo lanyards, some, some canine harnesses. Uh, they build everything to industrial specifications. It, it's, it is premium gear. Uh, it's not mill spec. It's industrial spec. Okay. It's all built like tanks. You can tow trucks with the belts and lanyards. I mean, they're, gotcha. they're, they're that well built. Uh, but we are expanding the product line largely. That's my role here. So eventually we'll have a full suite of, uh, basically your basic combat kit. And then, uh, we'll start releasing our expansion packs, you know, tactical medical EOD and so on. And then we're going to move on into, you know, apparel and, and, and camping, uh, or a garrison, but, you know, tents and sleeping bags, the full money. We'll have the full production suite. No, oh, that's awesome. Everything's made in the USA. And basically the premise of my job here is, and I haven't had a chance soon, I haven't had a chance to get started, is I'm going to design gear for tier one guys, and I'm going to go out and test it on myself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to get the built gear and then go out and use it. Yeah. No, that's sweet. Oh, well, last time we talked, as a matter of fact, it was, what, about, I don't know, three weeks ago or something like that. You were in the moving phase at that point. Matter of fact, you were trying to find movers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we got the move. We're done. We're settled in. We've been Great. here for about a month. You know, I'm still learning my way around here and, you know, trying to institute new ideas. But uh, I want Fusion Tactical to be, and I'm going to drag it across the finish line. That's happening. But Fusion Tactical will be, will be one of the premier tactical manufacturers in the, company, uh, in somebody, the country. Somebody may be listening to this and they're going to be going, okay, we talked about SF. We talked about SFAS and the Q and everything, but we never got too much into the unit. So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I was. When I got to, when I graduated the Q course, I went to 5th Special Forces Group and I, and I deployed, you know, like everyone else. But uh, somewhere around 2006, I, I jumped ship and went over to the unit and I was a medic there. Uh, and while I was there, I was also on the TCCC committee. I was a voting member for about five years. I used to go to the meetings and help, help work on the protocols and products. But can't talk operationally about what the unit does for obvious sure. reasons, but from a medical standpoint... I basically had full license. I mean, I had full license to go out and really perfect my craft. Uh, and by hook or by crook, I ended up in a position where prolonged field care ended up becoming a very relevant operational skill set again. And I found myself having got my personally, I got hooked on the short evac times. No, I did, especially yeah. being in a unit. You know, we get whatever we want, right? I call right. a medevac, medevac comes. Uh, so personally, you know, I got hooked on the short evac times, but then when I switched positions, uh, I was going to start operating in areas without infrastructure and all of a sudden it had to be an 18 Delta again. And I was, when I was in my research phase of this transition, I would start going out there and I, and it occurred to me, it's like, Hey, this knowledge has been basically lost. It's been, it's been lost. It's been shelved. And I had to go back to the 18 Delta schoolhouse, and I used to pull up the old 18 Delta schoolhouse manuals from years back. I had to dig up my stuff from the Q course, and uh, to some extent, we, we, we reinvented the wheel. We reinvented that, that 18 Delta prolonged field care model in-house, and we had to start off by debunking uh, some old standards that didn't make sense, like uh, Sock and Medic can sit on a guy for 24 to 48 hours and 
And an SF medic should be able to sit on a guy's for 72 to 96 hours. I'm like, for what? Well, what, is that, what does that encompass? What does yeah. that even mean? Yeah. Because if I get a guy who's shot in the stomach, you know, and he's bleeding internally, there ain't no 48 hours. I'm not a board-certified trauma surgeon. Well, does that mean that if I get a SACO medic that I'm not going to live quite as long if it's, uh, you know? Well, it's about <laughs> doctrine, and, and it's about, you know, primacy over missions and who gets what based off what capability. And a lot of that stuff was drafted off old numbers that the first thing we went out to do was prove. Like, hey, I don't care what anybody says. You ain't you're not sustaining a multi-system trauma patient for longer than 24 hours, unless you got an OR. You're not. That was, you're not. Because if he lives for 24 hours, guess what? He was going to live anyway. You know, yeah. more or less. Yeah, right. You know, or he's going to die from infection later. So we had to go out and set up some training skills. We went up in front of the, the Army Surgeon General and the Air Force Surgeon General, and we did some demonstrations, and we got those numbers pulled. And once we stopped operating off the SOCOM does this and SFMS does this, then we started getting into, well, how do we re-bracket this from an academic standpoint? And I'm not saying I invented prolonged field care, but that concept, that kernel of that, that follow-on care kind of came out of that training. Uh, and then eventually that got exported out to San Antonio via one of our PAs. And, uh, but it's just going back to our core skills. It's going back to our core skills, pharmaceuticals, labs, nursing. Uh, preventive medicine, all the stuff that just isn't sexy, we had to get back on there because in the areas we were operating, there was nobody. Nobody. That yeah. was it. And we were being true 18 deltas out there operating in that sphere. And there was nothing magical about being in the unit, you know, in terms of medical skills, other than they said they basically said, Hey, you're 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 the only people you're the they would tell you you're the only person stopping you from being the best. So I, I really got a chance. I was I was very well supported, and I understand that most of the other 18 Deltas and, and the other guys don't get that. I was very fortunate. But, yeah, I got to do basically anything I wanted, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. So any school I wanted, any training I wanted, and I did. I took full advantage of it. Now, beauty of all that that I hear from that, though, is that you're going to be able then to take that knowledge and be able to impart it onto others because you were exposed, had the opportunity to revise or to at least evaluate, look at the data, look at the numbers. And now um, I think what we're talking about, too, is that since you're on the private sector side, CEO of a company, having the ability to grow it up from the ground floor, um, you and others like you are the ideal people to be able to take this thing that we've just been spending the last hour talking about to the next level and put it on steroids. Uh, we're trying to, I mean, there's, it's not that there's resistance. It's just hard to generate momentum. Uh, you know, in order for me to give a TCCC class and it's ironic because I used to be on the committee, uh, I got to go get certified. I got to go get cards. And, and, and now there's these new restrictions on how you even give the class like, like you cannot deviate from the slides if if you want this to be a qualified. T- well, here's oh, the deal. Lord. If I can't yeah. deviate from the slides, there's virtually no difference, and there's no matter uh, as to what instructor you pick. Right. Like, I mean, right. It's just, it was just a bad move. It was a bad move. Bad move. I, I don't agree with it. Um, from top to bottom, I think having the credentials for TCCC and TECC is just bad all around. But people want to know why I don't give classes anymore because I'm not. You know, to put it bluntly, it's like I, I was a voting TCCC member. I was did this and did this. I, I know what I know. Uh, I'm not going to go pay $5,000 to go take a car to teach what I know. Screw that. That's for them. 
Yeah. And that happens all over the place in different types of uh, certifications. I mean, we touched on that or you did earlier and such. But, uh, I mean, no matter what it is, there ends up being this governing body. And I get the whole idea of it. You want to apply some level of discipline or rigor to what's being taught so that people don't go off the grid too much and provide some kind of information that may not be correct. The same token, though... You know, what are you, you have to think about what are you doing in that sense and, and how limiting are you? <clears throat> well, so the problem is when you get a room full of nerds, they come up with nerd solutions. So, and that's exactly what these credentialing bodies are. I mean, if you start looking at their requirements for having site training, you got to have air conditioning, you got to have seats, a portion of this, like, dude, I'm here to take these guys outside, make them sweat, make it hurt, put the fear of God in them, and make them learn that skill the hard way. They're going to sweat it out. Sweat equity. That's how you need to do it. Right. Uh, I don't care if these guys regurgitate. Now, I teach at the standard, and they take tests and all this, and they do the maintenance. But at the end of the day, I want to pull them out of that class, take them outside, and go get our smoke on. That's how you're going to learn. Yeah. goes and, back to what you said earlier, the dummy versus the uh, the live. You know it's a dummy. So you want to put you know them in those dummy. types of situations. Yeah. But, you know, it needs to be immersion training. It needs to be full full mission profiles. That needs to be the end state of all this training. I, I Too many times I go to these TAC med classes and they put up these PowerPoint slides about tactical stuff. And you got doctors telling infantrymen, you know, get off the X. I'm like, dude, do you even know what the X is? You know, and then, you know, their hands-on station is basically a round robin at these clinical skills, and they might get evaluated on the March assessment. It's pathetic. So <clears throat> nobody's out there getting hurt and, and fearing for their safety and doing all this stuff. The stuff that you need to simulate to simulate the stress of what it's going to mean to be in a, a care-under-fire scenario. You're going to have somebody out there trying to kill you. They've already wounded your partner. Are you just going to blow off your partner because you refuse to learn TAC med? That's what I hear. Hmm. That's what I hear from a lot of guys. Like, oh, well, I'm here for the for the firefight. Well, it's like, I hope you're not my partner. Oh, my God. Like, don't get me wrong. Pull security and, and, and go to the gun and do work. But, you know, where do you find time to make your radio calls? Where do you find time to do your mag changes? There's time in a gunfight. It's not TV. You know, it's not, it's not a laser fight G.I. Joe style for 10 hours on end. That's not how it works. Uh, a lot of the times it boils down to is nobody wants to do med training because it's hard and it's not fun. You know, mm. that's the biggest issue I got. So they'll show up to these classes. Uh, most of them have real good attitudes, but they get surprised. They get surprised. They're like, oh, yeah. It's like, here's your PowerPoint presentation. Boom, we knocked it out. Now go outside. And they get in the teams. Here's your equipment. Get ready to start dragging bags of meat. Yeah, love it. It's all about your reptilian brain. If, if a patrol officer or an infantryman comes up to me and he doesn't use the right medical terminology to describe attention pneumothorax, as long as he communicates what it is he's done and what it is he's, you know, he has, he's good. Yeah. His job is to sling lead, right? So I just want to program his reptilian brain to save his buddy's life and then go get back in the fight. That's the good. The clinical skills in the academia, well, that's where we focus on medics. But our shooters, no, you need to get your gun on. That's how, because that's that's an area you're going to be in. Right. So it's right. full mission profile. Well, hopefully they start paying more attention to you and uh, and making some of these changes if that's the situation. Well, it's getting harder. I mean, the longer the war goes on, the more veterans and more veteran trainers that are out there. And, and you know, the, the trainer market starts, it, it's it's packed. I mean, it is a tough market to compete in. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the generational gap. You got to remember when social media first hit the scene and demand this soft-based content started to percolate and, and create what is now the modern tactical industry, most guys like me, uh, we were downrange. We had nothing to do with it. 
you know, social media, Facebook and Instagram just weren't part of the equation. So while that demand was being generated by by my generation, my peers overseas, uh, they were being filled at home by whoever was available. You know, and they occupied those seats, built successful business models. And then our generation who created that demand, we get out of the military, try to come back and compete in the market. And here you have, you know, a senior medic in a special element of a special unit. Uh, I was struggling to get TCCC gigs and I was on the damn committee. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so it, it's tough. It's tough. You know, a lot of it has to do with the, the, the way your business is managed. Right. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's just a tough market to be in. So I decided I think I could do the most bang for the buck uh, by working in a, in a company like like Fusion that that ultimately supports my vision and gives me the latitude to come out and, and, and do the podcast, go do the meet and greet, go to the training areas and, and, and try to try to get it out there, try to spark spark the conversation. You're taking it from a different angle. And like we talked about earlier, you know, you're looking at it from a different lens. You're attacking it from where you can attack it today. And uh, so that's part of the beauty, again, of a lot of folks when they're making the transition. It's still maybe applying your passion, but maybe you're now doing it in a different way in which you can still provide some value either back to the forest, back to the community, um, or like in your case, help bring better knowledge or better equipment, uh, you know, back to anybody who needs it. Yeah. So for guys like me, I think, uh, I am most valuable to an organization, not because of my medical knowledge, which I know medical stuff, but in terms of training the force, I am most valuable to an organization because of my senior non-commissioned officer skills and my operational experience as an SF guy, the actual battlefield experience. So I designed my scenarios to maximize the concepts that are taught academically, but I, I draw them out. I don't let you escape. I'll give you an example. Most of the time when I see care under fire training, uh, people are so caught up with getting off the X, basically two things happen. Uh, the individual who's training either becomes magically John Wick, and he just smokes all the bad guys, and then he's free to work at his leisure. Thus alleviating himself of the need to do care under fire. And then the second option I see is they just pick the patient up, getting them off the X, and just leave the scenario where the tactical circumstances over here, and they're just free to practice medicine behind a berm. So they're doing care under fire procedures, but there's no under fire. There's no balance for them. There, there's no battle between their patient and the, the environmental hazard that's outside their, their, their peripheral vision. There's no balance. There's no fight. So what I like to do is I like to trap you and carry her under fire. I don't let you escape. You got to run the balance. Like you got to pull security. You need to be doing your, your procedures and looking around and scanning. Uh, you got to be able to do that. If you can't, you're not proficient. That's yeah. it. If you can't, you're not proficient. If you cannot proficiently exercise these two basic skills. When you combine two basic skills, oftentimes you produce an advanced skill. If you can't uh, effectively you know, perform these two basic skills in a full mission profile setting, you're not ready to walk out the door. That's it. Yeah. That's no, I like that kind of certification a whole lot better. All right, Jay. It was great talking to you, buddy, and I uh, wish you nothing but the best, and we'll make sure that we catch up with you here in the near, uh, near future for sure. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate you having me. Once again, if you like this show and you'd like to make a donation to the podcast, you can do so at www.patreon.com backslash mentors, the number four M-I-L. Thank you for everything you guys are doing to help us out.